Aristotle had four categories of causation. So material and efficient categories that we still have, but he also had formal and final categories, which, and, and this is essence and purpose. And we just ditched essence and purpose is no longer part of nature. So, which is crazy. I mean, essence and purpose hasn't gone away just because we can't think of them. <laughs> uh, but we put them in culture and make culture this separate sort of human construct that we just make up ourselves where meaning and purpose are things that we just generate out of kind of imaginative poetry. And But nature, it's the real we think of as simply the material and the existential. And the essential and the uh, eternal becomes just you know, speculative, supernatural stuff if you feel like that, but it doesn't have anything to do with reality, and reality is just existence. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and professor of theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever noticed when you're reading the Bible, maybe the New Testament in particular, how the New Testament authors have really very little hesitation interacting with, appropriating, adopting, uh, transforming Greek ideas. In fact, if you've read the New Testament, maybe it's John 1 or Acts 17, you may have even noticed that the biblical authors have a more in-depth understanding of classical Greek philosophy, for instance, than sometimes we or even modern theologians give them credit for. Could it be that the New Testament authors are engaging with the history of Greek thought in a way that is, in their own minds, not just critical, but even promising? Well, this brings to the table the really what we call Platonism and its long history, not just B.C., but A.D., and the way that Platonism was so revolutionary as an, not just an idea, a single idea, but even as a concept construct of an entire reality about transcendence itself. In fact, I would go so far to say that no serious philosopher or theologian in late antiquity could possibly even ignore Platonism. Uh, for this reason, we see so many from the church fathers to the medieval or even scholastic theologians engaging with Platonism, not merely as, say, a list of beliefs, but rather as an entire outlook on transcendent reality. The famous church father Augustine, both in the City of God and in his confessions, is an example of this. In fact, he goes so far to say that as he read the these Platonic authors, they actually transformed his understanding of transcendence so that when he read the Bible again, he could understand divinity in a way that was no longer a stumbling block to him. Platonism actually proved critical in his own story and conversion. The result in late antiquity was a type of Christian transcendentalism that in time has proved quite antithetical to modern metaphysics 
and even modern theology. In this episode of the Creative Podcasts, uh, we don't pretend that Platonism is, uh, say, a list of, of just mere uh, you know, beliefs, but actually something quite more in the history of uh, the world, but specifically in the history of Christian thought, an entire outlook on transcendent reality itself that the Christian tradition has found not just fascinating, but even strategic. It's for these reasons that I've asked Paul Tyson to come on the Credo podcast to talk to us about Platonism and what he has called Christian Platonism. You may know Paul Tyson from some of his books. He's the author of a book called Returning to Reality, Christian Platonism for Our Times. He's also written a book more recently called A Christian Theology of Science. Of course, Paul Tyson is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland in Australia, where he serves as a principal investigator and the project co-coordinator for the After Science and Religion Project. And so it is really a privilege to have Paul on the Credo Podcast to explore some of these difficult matters. Paul, thank you for joining me. Wonderful to be with you, Matthew. Great. Paul, I think it would be helpful for our listeners just to hear from you because you make a very bold claim, but a very important claim, where you say that you are making an argument, in fact, that the Christian Platonist outlook on the nature of reality is, well, simply the Christian outlook. So whether or not such an outlook is considered obsolete, Christians who want their thinking about reality to be integral with their beliefs and their actions should indeed, in fact, take it seriously. Now, uh, this argument that you make may be foreign to some Christians today, but you go to great lengths to explain why you think it is so credible. Now, there's so much there that we could jump into, but before we do so, maybe we can just set uh, the table, so to speak, and put down some of the basic concept concepts needed to even begin this conversation. Paul, you have st- spent a lot of time studying uh, both the New Testament and the Greek tradition. Can you just Explain to some of our listeners, why is it the case that when we come to the New Testament, we begin to see the New Testament authors assuming or even engaging or transforming certain Greek ideas? Maybe there's even some examples that you can think of. Sure. So the, as we all know, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. And this is the broad language of that era. For you know, most people would have spoken a number of languages, but this is, in a sense, like English is today. It was the the broad communicative language of a sort of an international community of thought and action, the Greco-Roman world. And language is a fascinating thing because it has its own sort of set meanings that that don't translate terribly naturally into other languages. So when we use the English language, we presuppose a whole set of meanings that sort of reflect histories from, you know, Shakespeare and the King James Bible and all sorts of literary backgrounds and customs and habits. So it's kind of the same. It's not, I don't think, an accident 
that the revelation of the scriptures is given to us in Greek. And uh, I, I suppose one of the key features of um, Middle Platonism, which was around at this time and was really the, the dominant way of thinking in the Greco-Roman world, just sort of assumed about the nature of how things are, uh, presupposed that there's a transcendent and divine reality which is the grounds of the material and natural world. And and there's a unity to our experience of reality, which the word cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, sort of means a unified whole. So there was order and meaning to the world. And as if you recall John's prologue about logos, this is, again, a very prominent idea kicking around in Stoics and Greek thinking at this time, is the idea that, the divine origin of reality speaks to us through every aspect of creation. And this is taken for granted by the Christian scriptures, and it's a framework where we live in a saturated reality that that is not simply material but is grounded in the spiritual. And as St. Paul sort of puts it, you know, what you can't see is real than what you can see. This is very much... Mm common to Greek thinking and common to the New Testament, common to Hebrew thinking. So the idea that only what you see is what you get, which tends to be a more modern view, was not really taken that seriously in the ancient world. So, you know, we walk by faith, not by sight, meaning we walk by an understanding of revelations of spiritual truths that are eternal and essential rather than simply temporal or simply existential. So, so the those four categories, the eternal and the temporal and the existential and the essential, all sort of bl- blend together in both the Platonist and the Christian understanding of reality. And this is a very rich and stunning sort of view of the world. And there are plenty of other cultures and, well, well actually not that many, but there are other cultural <laughs> ways of think, thinking about the world. But uh, so I think from a Christian perspective, there's no difficulty in saying that this basic idea where there's the spiritual and eternal is the grounds of the physical and the material is common to both the Platonist philosophical tradition and the Christian theological tradition. So there was no difficulty in Christianity sort of reaching into this Platonist tradition and taking what it wanted. It didn't take everything by any means. So there, there are clear distinctions between aspects of Platonist thinking that are pagan or non-Christian and Christian Platonism. But basic vision is in common with the Hebrew understanding and the early Christian understanding and the broadly Platonist understanding. So there's a broad realm of common ground there, which is which has become problematic for modern people. And as we've sort of moved away from this idea of the natural being grounded in the, in the spiritual. We've tended to separate the natural from the supernatural, and they're both sort of autonomous regions. That's very foreign to both the Platonist and the early Christian understanding of how we're embedded in the spiritual. Hmm. You know, Paul, sometimes Scripture will even use concepts that seem to get at this idea of participation, uh, it, it does this in a variety of ways, uh, whether it's talking about the existence of God 
or perhaps divine providence or creation itself. Some sometimes scripture even uh, moves into this do- this area when it describes soteriology and, and so forth. Uh, I think of Acts seventeen, for example, the way Paul, you know, sometimes that question has been asked, you know, what what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Uh, Paul, in many ways, answers that question when he enters Athens itself, uh, when he speaks to to some of these bright minds in the Areopagus. Uh, It's fascinating, isn't it, that Paul will quote from their own heritage at one point to say, well, in, in him we live and move and have our being. I suppose that raises a question because you meant you said a minute ago that there is this common overlap, if we can call it that, between Christianity and historic the historic Platonist tradition. Participation seems to be one of those key moments. So, could it be helpful if you simply take us back in time and talk to us about the beginnings of this Platonic tradition, how you mentioned this idea of a transcendent reality that is, is so different from our modern understanding where we really separate the spiritual and the natural. So take us back in time. Talk to us about Plato himself. How does he understand participation? How does he understand transcendent reality? How does that take on a bit of a different outlook with Aristotle. We could uh, perhaps we could even go further with the Neoplatonists and talk about Plotinus, but give us a, a, a basic outlook from their vantage point. Okay, great question. So we sort of circle around from Plato to try and look at the differences between a modern outlook where there's no real categories of what we'll call ontological participation and and the idea that the nature of reality itself is embedded in the divine. So, and this relates to what St. Paul said in, in Acts chapter 17 about quoting the, the passage where it's in God we live and move and have our being. So so the word is or, or being or the, these words for just things that are is the word on in Greek. So ontology is the sort of the logic and reasoning about what it means to be, what it means that things are, the isness of things. And in in Greek grammar this is a very significant category. So the so Plato's fascinated by what it means to be. And the we live in this complex dynamic where the temporal and the material isn't clearly locked down, okay? Anything you can see and touch changes, and it's from one point of time, it's not exactly the same as it was in the next point of time. So if something's always changing, what actually is it? This is a difficult question for Greek thinking. And... So something needs to be the same for me to be the same person I was yesterday as I am today, even though things about me change. So the relationship between those things that don't change and those things that do change is a complex problem in, in, in Greek philosophy. And it's still a complex problem, actually. <laughs> uh, but the, the way that 
the, the Platonist tradition sort of understands is that it distinguishes between things that are about essence and things that are about existence. And the, this becomes a strong theme in medieval philosophy as well, taken up by Thomas Aquinas. So it's absolutely there with someone like Augustine, who's operating in the late classical milieu. So the way Thomas Aquinas incorporates Augustinian Platonist categories into a more Aristotelian framework is kind of a fascinating feature of medieval theology, but we, we won't get there just for the minute. <laughs> um, but going back to the idea that there are essential realities that don't change over time, that are somehow the grounds of things that do change in time, and this is the difference between essence and existence, so, so that the eternal, unchanging world of definable isness, like a circle, okay? So a, a circle is a certain mathematical relationship that's eternally true. Any given material circle is not exactly round and will degenerate over time. And so... This means to people like Plato that there is a kind of a, an intellective or spiritual reality that doesn't change and a temporal and physical reality that is participates in these essential natures in a kind of a partial and unfolding way over time. So, so this meant to the Platonist tradition that the real world is actually not tangible. And the tangible world is sort of real. Okay, so as you can hear from what I'm saying, this is almost exactly the opposite of what we mean when we talk about reality now. When we talk about reality, we're talking about existence. And it's kind of funny that we ask, does God exist? Because that's not a question that would have come up in the ancient world. God is essential rather than existential in the ancient world. Right? And it's a bizarre feature of Christian theology that God comes to exist in the incarnation. So, so God becomes a being in space and time, you know, as, as John talks about in, in the prologue. The word became flesh and we saw and we touched the eternal and transcendent God in the, in, made present to us in terms we could understand this incredible condescension of the divine to speak to us in human terms. It's, a, it's like it's shocking to a Greek. Mm. <laughs> when Paul talks about the offense of the gospel, this is the offense, right? Yeah. That, that, that God would deem to enter existence. So, so you can see when we, when we have all these arguments, does God exist? You know, we, we're thinking as if God's a guy with a beard in the sky. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's never how they thought about God in the Platonist tradition and never how the patristic Christian tradition thought about God. Mm. So the God as the grounds, of the spiritual eternal grounds of all essence, such that the classic categories are beauty, goodness, and truth. These are the high forms of meaning that God gives to creation. And without God giving this, these essential categories of being to temporal beings, 
So when we talk about, when I'm talking about beauty, goodness, and truth, I'm using a big B, capital B being, uh, as essential eternal qualities and meanings. And when we, when I talk about beings, I'm using a small B as temporal transitory creatures that come into existence and go out of existence over a period of time. Um, so, so God as goodness beyond being in Plato, God as the source of all illumination in, in the intelligible world and the source of all quality and value and meaning, the center of all worth, which is to say that this, the first object of worship is the, the basis on which creation and us live and move and have our being. So the idea of ontological participation in Platonist thinking is that the creator is, is fundamentally different to creation in that the creator is the source of all essential and transcendent value and meaning and all order in creation. Mm. And creation, it's not like it's not like God sort of made the world and sort of wound it up and let it go and he sort of disappeared into heaven. That's not that's a kind of a modern nature versus supernature view. It's just not there. In Platonist thinking, it's just not there in the New Testament. In the idea is that God is continuously and currently creating the world because the world would be nothing if God didn't make it be. Hmm. So the world has nothing that is self-standing in itself. The world is thoroughly derivative of essential values and meanings expressed in matter and time where matter and time are god's creation and they themselves matter time and energy wouldn't exist without god's continuous acts of creative upholding mm. so when paul talks about in god we live and move and have our being these are categories greek philosophy in the platonist tradition understood entirely well and these are the categories in which paul was thinking himself and he was trying to explain to the Greeks, look, here's this astonishing thing that the essential, eternal God, who is the grounds of being, who is goodness beyond being, became a man and lived and died and rose again and redeemed us from an inherent alienation we have between us as creatures and him as creator, not because we're creatures and he's the creator, but because of sin. And so he's explaining to them the astonishing mystery of the revelation of the incarnation in categories that make perfect sense to them in terms of the transcendent God. What's really different? I think we lost him. His, I think his call dropped. Okay. You're back again? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, it cut out for a second there. Let's go ahead and can you hear me okay? I can hear you again. Um, I'm presuming what I said is, okay. is recorded and you'll yes. get it later. <laughs> it's still good. So let I'll just uh, pose another question here and we'll just pick up where you left off, okay? Yep, good. Okay. So, Paul, you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, which is really fascinating because as Platonism is engaged with, say, the Church Fathers but also the medieval scholastics, this becomes quite a critical moment in the history of Christianity. Can you speak to us about how an Augustine or perhaps a Thomas Aquinas, how do they appropriate Platonism 
and its transcendent outlook on reality. And how does this, uh, I'd like to move in this direction, since you mentioned modernity, how does this differ from, say, Duns Scotus and University or, say, a, a William of Ockham and what we today call nominalism? Excellent question. Okay, so as mentioned just before, the Platonist idea is profoundly embedded in the notion of ontological participation, that we don't have self-standing existence or self-standing essence, that, that qualitative purpose and meaning are given to us, and even space and time reality is a gift from God. So, so we, we live in a kind of a, a saturated cosmos where God is closer to us than our very breath. And so, so this is an outlook that, particularly as you mentioned in the introduction, has no difficulty in saying, well, this is actually a Christian understanding of the world as well as a Greek understanding and as well as a Hebrew understanding. So there are, so, so Augustine has this astonishing, I think in the history of Western philosophy, Western culture, there are four giants, Plato, Aristotle, Augustine and Aquinas. So Augustine in many ways reworks Platonist categories in philosophical categories into sort of deeply worked out Christian theological categories in the West, in the East, in the patristics in the East, you know, Basil and these guys, they're doing this stuff all the time. I think they're more naturally Greek in their thinking being Greek speaking. But Augustine is the person in the West who translates these sort of Greek philosophical ideas into Latin and into Western Latin thinking. And this has an enormous impact. Augustine is the guy who is really the grounds of the intellectual life of medieval Christendom. So if you know a bit about the history, the Roman civilization is on the point of crashing when Augustine dies. He's, he dies when his city is surrounded by Visigoths or the Vandals, one of those. The Roman Empire is, is falling apart and it, it just lands in a big pile of poo for a while. And the Western Europe is just this small bunch of warring city-states with no overarching Roman peace and no overarching sort of high culture. And it's really the Irish who save us, um, God bless the Irish, and the monastic <laughs> movement in the in the what's called the Dark Ages. So Western European culture is not Christianised under Constantine. It's Christianised in the Dark Ages because of the Celtic monks who come and set up monasteries. But that's another story. But anyway, so by the time Europe recovers from its sort of disintegration of the Roman Empire and you get the Gothic kingdoms, sorry, the Franks, and the Paris becomes this great revival centre of revived culture and power and England sort of starts recovering from being ransacked by everyone and debated by everyone. And so by the sort of the 12th century, things are really going well again in a sort of an expansive civilization in Western Europe where everyone sort of talks to each other and they're unified by a common language in the academic and in the intellectual arena, which is Latin. 
And at this point, Augustine is really the, the foundation of theological thinking. And his metaphysics, his way of understanding the nature of being, is strongly Platonist. And Thomas Aquinas has a strongly Platonist metaphysics. And yet the fascinating thing that's going on at this time in, in the 13th century, when Thomas is around, is that classical learning is being re rediscovered in the West via Arabic writings. So the Arabics, like, like, it's a little bit hard for us to understand this, I suppose, but in the 9th century in Baghdad, they were just the most advanced city in the world. And they had uh, gas street lights, 700 lending libraries. They, they had science and knowledge in advance of anyone else. Mm. And poor old, poor old Europe was definitely a bunch of barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe we're still a bunch of barbarians, but that's another question. <laughs> the, but through, through a lot of translations with Arabic, Jewish and Christian scholars goes on and Aristotle is recovered. And, and the big sort of, sort of intellectual excitement of the 13th century is how do you synthesize this great sort of treasure of wisdom from a lost civilization into, and, and it's pagan, okay? Aristotle is pre-Christian and pagan and not anywhere near as kind of theologically orientated as Plato as well. That's another interesting point we could get to in a minute. How do you integrate this great thinker into a thoroughly Augustinian and thoroughly biblical and lives of the saints grounded culture of monastic learning? And so Aquinas is this super genius who does this incredible synthesizing work of incorporating an essentially Christian Platonist metaphysics with an Aristotelian logic and science. And this becomes a great synthesis that Aquinas himself held together with incredible subtlety. I mean, I, I don't know how much Thomas you've read, Matthew, but he's just an absolutely beautiful thinker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I would, definitely, different... I, I would definitely agree. I mean, it, I think sometimes we're drawn to his precision and his clarity, but we often forget that Thomas and his Summa, for example, he's also weaving uh, his, from metaphysics to theology, I mean, he's weaving uh, an entire picture of reality and the Christian faith in a way that's that's uh, quite brilliant and, and even beautiful. Yes, and you only get one Thomas every, you know, two or three millennia. <laughs> <laughs> and what he was able to weave, many Thomists haven't been able to. And this particular problem in neo-Thomism, which we will get to at some point, but the way in which significant, there's a beautiful scholar, Joseph Pieper, a Catholic theologian from the 1940s, 50s, mm. and just amazing. Anything of Pieper you can read, I'd highly recommend. But he's got a beautiful book called The Silence of St. Thomas, mm. where he points out that Thomas is very much interested in the Greek apophatic tradition which is to say the difference between apophatic and cataphatic is that cataphatic means things you can say, apophatic means things you can't say. So anything that's really true about God you can't say, even though we have things you can say about God which are sort of true by analogy. To say that God is Father, our Father, 
doesn't mean he physically births us, right? So, but what it does mean is that a physical father is an analogy of God. Mm. And so Thomas has this really subtle understanding of apophatic reasoning, and he's very influenced by St. Dionysius, pseudo-Dionysius as we now call him, and and this is a strongly sort of Greek Platonist metaphysics in theology. And so, so the way in which he treats Augustine is he baptizes, sorry, treats Aristotle, is he baptizes Aristotle into an Augustinian Christian metaphysics mm. and produces this incredibly complex and rich synthesis, which almost falls apart at the minute he dies. Yeah. (laughs) How you balance the cataphatic with the apophatic, how you balance metaphysics with logic, Mm. how you balance a very kind of scientific understanding of nature with a profoundly metaphysical understanding of being. Thomas does all this incredibly complex synthesis in unbelievably clear logic. And, but. in 1274, I think it is, there's this huge crisis and Thomas gets sort of, he gets banned and and the, it's because people can't hold the synthesis together. They tend to sort of just go holus bolus with Aristotle and sort of dismiss the subtle metaphysics. They, they go, you know, Aristotle, logic and science, they just try and do everything with that uh, rather than even appreciating the complexities of Aristotle's metaphysics which Aristotle is, after all, Plato's student. And I've got a great little book here by Lloyd Gerson called Aristotle and Other Platonists. Mm. The tension between Aristotle and Plato is not as deep as it's been made out to be. But that tension was really an issue in the 13th century. And people are called Greek necessitists took Aristotelian thinking and sort of made an opposition between Aristotelian science and logic and Platonist and Augustinian metaphysics, which wasn't part of what we call Platonism, which is the synthesis of Plato and Aristotle in the ancient world, where you would read Aristotle as a preparation to Plato. So Aristotle's logic and science and ethics is stuff that he's really incredibly strong on that Plato doesn't have a lot of interest in. And but that's the grounds for going to the higher territory of Plato's metaphysics and categories of justice and goodness and beauty and how they work out and how we never really grasp those things but we are building towards them analogically. So so the Neoplatonist synthesis of these two great masters is something that Aquinas takes very seriously, yeah. but people after Aquinas tended to not take so seriously because not everyone's got this incredible synthetic mind that, that <laughs> Thomas had who can hold these really incredibly disparate and different emphases together in the one system. Mm. So, so Thomas was astonishing. I, I lost my track. Where was I going with all this? <laughs> well, and maybe we could add to that, Paul. Would you say, as a, a fitting segue, Thomas and the analogy of being, how, how, maybe you can explain what this is about, how this, why this is so crucial to that synthesis you mentioned, because when we move into the late medieval period, we begin to see 
Thomas's, though it's not just him, they're reacting to others like Henry of Ghent, Henry of Gent, among others, but there seems to be a large suspicion or even doubt with the advent of, say, challenging the analogy, be, uh, analogy of being with, say, the university of being, and, and then ultimately with Occam, a move to even question the existence of universals themselves. So how, maybe you can, because in the 13th century, we begin to see that break, but can you compare, contrast Thomas and the analogy of being for us with what comes later in the late medieval scholastics with a really a a very different and quite a radical radically different paradigm yes yes Uh, excellent so the idea thomas talks about there are ways of understanding how things can be true and one is to to say there's a kind of a, a a total correlation between orders of, of meaning and another one is to say there's a total discorrelation and between these is analogy so so when there's a correlation you know if i'm studying a physical reality and i'm sort of galileo rolling balls down a, a slope and looking at the effect of gravity on it there's a, a correlation between my observation and a mathematical model of what's happening that i can say is true in the terms of physical actions. So that's not an analogy, that's just a kind of a direct relation. So famously, Galileo throws out Aristotle's understanding of gravity, whereby the Earth, heavy things are drawn downwards to the Earth by a kind of a a sort of a sympathetic attraction such that heavier things are attracted more quickly than light things, right? So Galileo does his maths and his experiments and he discovered this doesn't make any difference how heavy something is, it all falls at the same speed. And then he does a thought experiment with dropping a, a cannonball and a feather off the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and if Aristotle's right, the ball should go both faster, the object should go faster and slower at the same time because the feather tied to the cannonball should make it heavier, <laughs> the whole thing heavier so it should fall faster. But... The feather is lighter than the cannonball, so it should slow it down. So this obviously can't work. So the Galilei is working out a sort of a physical correlationist perspective, and he throws out Aristotle's physical theory of gravity on the basis that it just doesn't match observation. And as anyone who really understands Aristotle knows, Aristotle is very interested in observation. So he would have been impressed to be demonstrated wrong there. But that's another question. It's me. I'm getting myself lost again. Where was I going? <laughs> and <laughs> um, wouldn't you oh, say... Analogy of being. Good, yeah. good. Excellent. Analogy of being. So, so direct correlations are one way of talking about truth, and their opposite is when something is false. So it's false that Aristotle's theory of gravity just doesn't match physical reality. But there's something between true and false in relation to simple correlations, And that's analogy. And like we talked about before, to say that God is our father is to speak analogically. So it's not a simple true or false correlation idea. It's analogy refers to things that transcend our immediate determinate knowledge. 
So, and this relates to an understanding of reality where there are determinate things we can know to do with tangible temporal reality, but we don't ever know them in a final way because they're always changing. This is the ancient Greek view. And then there are things that are beyond physical temporal reality, qualities of beauty, meaning, goodness, truth, value, purpose, these sorts of things that are some, in some sense essential that you can partially know in the realm of space and time. And these partially knowable things are best grasped analogically. And so Aristotle, sorry, Aquinas says it's not appropriate to talk about the being of God in either that God is a is kind of a definable determinate being that we can know in the categories of our determinate knowledge, which are limited, very limited. You can't squeeze God in a little box of proving a determinate thing like balls rolling down a, a slide because God is not within creation. God is the grounds of creation. But we have been given a revelation where we have analogical ways of understanding who God is and analogic and the only way of talking about who God is, this is a being question if you're a Greek, okay? A what and a who and isness question is a being question. So who God is cannot be grasped fully by human understanding. And so we get analogies as the best way that God is able to reveal to us what he's like. So, so Aquinas is very clear. You shouldn't say God is a being. So funny enough, we have this wonderful guy in America, David Bentley Hart. I don't know if you know much of David's stuff, but his beautiful little, one of his beautiful little books on sort of having a go at the new atheists talks about in classical Christian theology, nobody believes that God exists. <laughs> God is not a being in the world that could exist. God is the grounds of being. And so in, we've got that in common with atheists. <laughs> we don't believe that God's a guy in the, in the sky with a beard. So, so anyway, so, so Thomas is very clear that, Thomas Aquinas is very clear that you should only think of the being of God as an analogy. Anything we can think about being is not the being of God. God is beyond that because God is the grounds of all being and the grounds of our own being. So, so Thomas treads this very fine line in having a rich ontological, metaphysical understanding of God as the creator being the grounds of all creation and things in creation having purposes beyond themselves. Like we have natural desire for God that cannot be satisfied within creation. So, so Thomas fits this metaphysic, this complex metaphysics into a very concrete natural philosophy, logical understanding of the world that Aristotle provides. And yet he's very careful to make sure that God is not thought of as a being in existence, but as the essential grounds of being and beyond our understanding to really grasp. Hmm. Now, that proves very complicated and difficult for people because what is God seems to be the basic question of theology. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and famously, the Franciscans 
shortly after the time of Thomas, and we're talking here, Duns, Scotus and William of Ockham, have all sorts of problems with the analogy of being as in relation to God. And Gotus gets a different angle on this in a very interesting way. And he says, no, the word being to have any meaning at all has to have the same meaning in all contexts. So the being of a, you know, a pile of horse poo, let's say, <laughs> the being of a person and the being of God, the word has to mean the same in all the context or else it's a meaningless word. So this is called the university of being. The, the word being has one meaning, not different layers of meaning. But he says he sort of salvages the idea of the complete otherness of God by saying God is an infinite being. So instead of, and, and this kind of blows up metaphysics actually, because the whole point of being in Greek thinking is that you can tell what something is. So the the idea of being not being an is term, not being an essential and definable term, sort of does all sorts of funny things with traditional metaphysics. But anyway, so that's Scotus's attempt to to uphold the the richness of being as we experience it, such that you know physical tangible reality is real is genuinely real being, not just sort of a kind of a fuzzy shadow of being. So you can see why Thomas does that. Sorry, not Thomas, why Scotus does that. But Occam in a step goes a step further. And this is where we get the concept of nominalism. So Occam is very cheesed off with complicated metaphysical speculation in his era. And he says, look, in, in a you know, the way we think of Occam's razor now is we say the simplest answer is the best answer. But actually Occam's principle of ontological economy is is not to to be more simpl simplified than necessary. So 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 what Occam means is if you can give an explanation of something without assuming ontological participation, you should. Right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden things become kind of self standing in their own right. And universals, which are sort of big transcendent ideas, you know, beauty, goodness, truth, become just ways of speaking. So the word nominalist means names. So anything that's a universal is just a name to, mm. to, to William of Ockham. Thus that we kind of lose this idea of ontological participation. We lose this idea that a beautiful rose participates in beauty. To, to to William of Ockham, no, it's just that thing is beautiful itself. It's right. not participating in anything beyond itself. And when we describe it as beautiful, we're just using a name to talk about a specific concrete thing. Now, it, it, it's a complicated thing, but I think the... Certainly for Scotus, he's not really trying to blow up traditional metaphysics, whereas I think Ockham probably is. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by the time we get to the 16th century, it's gone. Uh, by the time we get to the 16th century, the influence of nominalism has kind of destroyed ontological metaphysical thinking, and everything is just a sort of a concrete material reality with its own being. And we, and we get this idea of nature pura in the 16th century, 
where nature is ontologically self-standing. And this separates nature out from the supernatural and the supernatural from the 16th century on is considered entirely ontologically autonomous from the natural. Hmm. So you get this split cosmos between a purely natural but self-standing creation and a purely supernatural heaven and God. And Paul, um, do you think when we con- contrast, say, the realism of the great tradition, granted it can take you know, various forms in terms of who we're talking about. But when it seems to be that you are contrasting the realism that we see in the pre-modern period with, on the one hand, what you might call a modern realism or even a critical realism, modernity and post-modernity, but even a nominalism. Can, can you flesh that out for us just briefly? Like, can you talk to our listeners? What is the difference between those two, and why is it quite drastic, that contrast? Yes. So Paul Tillich actually pointed out that when a medieval talks about realism, it's, all, it's exactly the opposite of what we talk about. Hmm. So, And as we said way back in the start, okay, to the kind of traditional Platonist tradition, what you can't see is realer than what you can see. The essential and the eternal is the grounds of the temporal and the existential. Now, we flip that around and we say the existential and the temporal and the concrete and the material are real in their own right, and then we say that the essential and the metaphysical are just speculative moonshine. (laughs) And that's really the modern move. So so in the modern move, you can say, well, once once you say that the temporal, the material and the physical are self-standing, they don't need any ontological grounding in God, then God becomes redundant from our experience of reality and from the meaning and purpose of reality. And reality becomes material stuff with no meaning or purpose, which is exactly what happens in the 17th century when we throw out Aristotle. So Aristotle had four categories of causation, so material and efficient categories that we still have, but he also had formal and final categories, which and, and this is essence and purpose. And we just ditched essence and purpose as no longer part of nature, So, which is crazy. I mean, essence and purpose hasn't gone away just because we can't think of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we put them in culture and make culture this separate sort of human construct that we just make up ourselves where meaning and purpose are things that we just generate out of kind of imaginative poetry. Mm. And But nature, it's the real we think of as simply the material and the existential. And the essential and the uh, eternal becomes just, you know, speculative supernatural stuff if you feel like that, but it doesn't have anything to do with reality. And reality is just existence. So you can see we've completely flipped the categories of reality from the categories that Augustine and Aquinas accepted to the modern categories where only the concrete and the material exist. And this is why we don't like Plato anymore, because okay? Plato says, no, the material and the, the temporal are not their own grounds. They don't have the capacity to be coherent or meaningful 
or even hold together in a cosmos outside of the super material ontological grounds of being, which is the divine. And Paul, would you, in terms of giving some specific markers, though, of course, you know, it would take an entire, a whole new conversation to discuss this at length. But in terms of modernity and even post-modernity, who do you have in mind specifically? And where do things begin to turn in that direction? So, for example, with the loss of formal or even final causality, do you have in mind someone like David Hume? And certainly with, you know, final causality disappearing into a type of subjectivity that we see with the individual or culture itself, would you turn listeners' attention towards someone like like Friedrich Nietzsche, for example? Okay, well, look, this is fascinating. I, I, I've just, as, as you mentioned, I've just done a book on a Christian theology of science because it starts very early, okay, but Descartes is reacting to the recovery of Sextus Empiricus. So the ancient scepticism and ancient hedonism and ancient atomism has sort of been recovered as part of the Renaissance. So you get these traditions that Gassendi really in the 17th century is necessary for someone like Hume. So uh, Gassendi recovers Democritus, who said there's only atoms, motion and void. Um, and so he gets rid of the whole category of essential being. And by, with John Locke, we get this idea that, you know, prime realities are sort of extended matter. And that's the only thing that's really real. Any meaning or purpose we we sort of gloss that with is simply our gloss. And then Hume, of course, does the same thing, that, you know, there's no such thing as ought. There's only is. Morality is simply a human gloss. Hmm. Um, so, so, and this, this is all possible because we've accepted a a purely self-standing materialist view of nature, which I think is an enormous mistake. And But it gives this wonderful instrumental power, okay? <laughs> and if you look at Francis Bacon, he's not really interested in essence at all. He just doesn't give a toss for Aristotle. It's not like he says Aristotle's wrong. He just says he's not interesting hmm. because he's interested in knowledge as power. He's interested in with instrumental mastery of nature for theological reasons. He believes we have dominion over the earth and that we will bring about the eschaton by science. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, so modern science has got this bizarre modern Christian theological birth, and it just gets weirder from there. The Goodness me, I'm losing my track again. What was I going, <laughs> Matthew? And um, I wonder if we could add to that. I mean, well, just for instance, <clears throat> when we look at how this then tends to evolve in the wake of post-modernity after oh, yes, 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 yes. someone like Nietzsche. I mean, and I know you make this point yourself, and maybe this would be a good way to bring our listeners to a conclusion here. There seems to be such a a, a different outlook, a, a different mind and spirit entirely between what we see with Nietzsche and his understanding of reality or the lack thereof in terms of subjectivity, and what we see with someone like C.S. Lewis, who's not just calling, but even at times begging the modern man to return to the medieval mind, because at least there 
Lewis senses an objective reality in which there are universals and there is an objective morality by which there we can even claim something like natural law or even virtue by which the human being should live. How does that contrast... I mean, because I know a, a lot of your thought, Paul, moves in that direction as you're wanting to take Christians today and say, no, you do have a metaphysic in place and you do need to consider its consequences for reality as we know it. How do you personally navigate that contrast between, say, living in the aftermath of a a Nietzsche uh, world, and someone like C.S. Lewis, who, who I know you resonate a lot with, and even call him a Christian Platonist. Yes, excellent. Okay, so I think Kant is the big figure here, and I'll explain quickly why. So in the 18th century, you've got a rationalist trajectory, particularly French, and an empiricist trajectory, particularly English or Scottish. Um and famously, in, in terms of Kant's analysis, the rationalists are a priori. So something is rationally true sort of by definition and it's circular, whereas a posteriori knowledge is empirical knowledge. It's knowledge after the event. So you only ever have empirical knowledge as experience after something's happened. And the big challenge of 18th century philosophy was to try and get the rational and the empirical together and it just didn't work the the rational never looped into the practical and the empirical so you get Descartes mind body dualism having no way of getting the mind to connect to the body <laughs> or you get Humean sort of uh, empiricism which can never really say that you know just because I drop the pencil and it goes down I can't empirically say that it's going to go down beforehand I can only say after that it went down so how do you get rational and empirical thinking together? Kant solves the problem by getting rid of reality. It's brilliant. <laughs> okay. so, so Kant says, well, let's just not worry about how things really are. Let's just go with how things appear to us. Mm. So he gets rid of the noumenal, which is how things really are, and the realm of metaphysics, and goes with the phenomenal, how things appear to us. And he puts the knowing subject at the center of all understanding. Once you do that, you have totally departed from a Christian sort of theological understanding of God being the center, right? So we kind of set ourselves up as the little idol in our own minds to judge the nature of reality and meaning. We, we end up, after, after Kant's sort of given us only phenomena, you can go down this counter-enlightenment and postmodern trajectory where the objective reality is unknowable. So our experience of meaning making becomes the central reality and meaning making reduces to power and everything becomes incredibly pointless <laughs> or, or just a contest. And there's no essential meaning to anything. So, so Lewis is saying, look, Essential meaning really is there. You can only know it analogically, as both Plato and Augustine and Aquinas point out, um, but that is our existential understanding of reality is embedded in an essential and divine grace. And this is the only way to know a type of truth. Uh, like the modern idea of totally determinate truth is actually 
not true for everything. It's true for science. It's true for material determinate things, but it's that's not the full truth of reality. So the full truth of reality is we live and move and have our being in God and ascension, essential meaning and purpose are really there. So, so yeah, I think the, the way Lewis responds to Kant is to say, and one of my favourite philosophers is William Desmond, who takes Kant on and beats him to a pulp. <laughs> so if you ever want to see someone do something really dangerous and fabulous with Kant, I recommend William Desmond. So the idea that we are now live in a post-metaphysical philosophical context is just a myth. Mm. And if you believe that myth, you'll end up in either postmodernism or reductive modernism. And both of those things are false. So that's why Lewis is right. <laughs> We've been talking to Paul Tyson at the University of Queensland in Australia. He's the author of many books, including uh, Returning to Reality. He has uh, also authored a number of books that begin to look at science itself, Christian Theology of Science being his most recent one. If you're interested in some of the other books he mentioned, you may want to also pay attention to his book, Astonishment in Science, Engagements with William Desmond as well. If you've enjoyed this Credo podcast with Paul Tyson, you may be interested in other episodes of the Credo podcast in which we uh, talk to some of the best theologians, philosophers of our day. And of course, uh, you can find uh, articles, interviews, and more uh, by reading Credo magazine at credomag.com, published quarterly engaging not just uh, theological topics today, but retrieving uh, some of the most important doctrines of orthodoxy for renewal in the church today. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.